Good morning to all of you. It's good to be together in the house of the Lord today, and I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter 5. We're nearing the end of our expositions and this little epistle tucked near the end of our New Testaments, and I trust that over the course of these months, you have been able to examine yourself as to whether you can have true Christian assurance, which has been a major theme. Uh, next week, we'll finish the exposition in this book. We'll probably go to Second and Third John quickly, and then um, we've decided to do a exposition of First Corinthians thirteen to continue the theme of love. And then around the first of the year, we'll begin an Old Testament exposition uh, to be determined. Uh, we're bouncing around a couple of ideas, so that kind of gives you a roadmap as far as where we are going. But for today, we're looking at verses 13 to 17. The title of the message is Confidence and Assurance in Prayer. And John, now as he comes, and, and this is really the epilogue or the conclusion of his epistle, beginning in verse 13, the final thoughts and encouragements that he gives, he wants true Christians to have a well-grounded assurance. A well-grounded assurance that's founded not upon how well you're performing, but it's founded upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been a repeated theme throughout this letter. And brothers and sisters, you know that our feelings cannot be depended on. They're an untrustworthy guide. Uh, they're, they're subjective. They're easily deluded. And so, so many that are doubting become ineffective in the kingdom of God. Because they're doubting and they don't have that assurance that God would have us to have. And the devil is happy to have Christians marching around in God's army as long as they don't really know where they're going. The devil's content to have that. The old saying, if it feels right, it must be right, has no solid foundation for spiritual reality. No, our hearts can have peace and true assurance to the degree that we're looking to the finished work of Christ. So let's read verses 13 to the end of the letter. Beginning in verse 13 from the New American Standard. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit the sin not leading to death. Now there is a sin leading to death, and I do not say that you should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Let's pray. 
Father, indeed, we confess that often we lack the assurance and confidence and prayer that we ought to have. And Lord, we pray that your word would be instructive to us this day. We pray that the Holy Spirit would, as it were, drive the very truths of your scriptures deep within our hearts, that it would affect our thinking, that we would renew our minds, that we would believe these things. And Lord, to the end, that we might be conformed more and more to the image of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, you'll remember last time, it's been a couple of weeks, uh, a few weeks actually, since we were in it, but verses 6 to 12 was all about what? testimony, witness. It was all about bearing testimony. The, the noun and the verb form occurred 10 times. And, and so he's talking about there are three that testify, the water, the blood, and the spirit. And we talked about all the various views that are out there, and there's a lot of them, but it narrowed down to this, that the water is his baptism in which the heavens were open and God the Father confirmed, this is my son. Listen to him. I am well pleased in him. The spirit descends as a dove. And so the inauguration of his ministry in the blood and the water is not when he was pierced in the side, but rather it's the atoning work of Christ that has ongoing benefits for the very people of God. And then that third witness he mentions is the Holy Spirit. And then he says, these three agree. Now, in any court of law, if you had three witnesses and they all had a different testimony, right, the the person would get off. Nobody would be convicted with that. But no, these three testify to this truth. And then, of course, it goes on to say God is greater than man and so it is in his testimony. And so that that brings us to our text today. We want to examine this. There's obviously, um, you know, a lot of question about what is the sin leading to death and all of that. And we're going to unpack that. We're going to get there. But I want you to notice a couple of things. Just in verses 13 to 15, he mentions repeatedly something that we have. It's something that we have as well as something that we know. Okay, and so um, the word have three times in verse 13 to 15, you have eternal life. This is the confidence that we have. We have or we know that we have the request from him. And then the word know that you may know that you have eternal life. If we know that he hears us in whatever he asks, and then we know we have the request from him. But in verse 13, he's talking about assurance, and we're going to unpack that. Charles Spurgeon says this, that it is our duty to obtain a full, well-grounded assurance. And he says this, we should not have been commanded to give diligence and to make our calling election sure if it was not right for us to be sure. I am sure it is right for the child of God to know that God is his father and never to have a question in his heart about his sonship. And so when we have those verses to make our calling and election sure to examine ourselves, when we've been going through this entire letter and we've got the love test, do we truly love the brethren? The obedience test, are we truly obeying God? And then the doctrinal text, are we really believing that Jesus is the sinless second person of the Holy Trinity? Are we really believing that he is the God-man contra to the Gnostics? And these three tests are the various tests that occurred repeatedly repeatedly in this letter to at the end if you've passed those tests you can have a well grounded assurance and that's really what he is saying in verse 13 
And then he addresses prayer, and there's a lot of confusion about prayer. Is prayer, you know, changing God's will to get what I want or, and all of that kind of stuff? There are different types of prayer. Does prayer change things, or does prayer merely change the one who is praying? Um, what should we pray? Uh, can we be sure that God hears our prayer? And really what the answer is, is we can be confident that God hears our prayer. Why? It's the qualification in the text. If we pray according to his will. And so we'll unpack that as well. And then John addresses a thing in verses 16 to 17, what I would call is intercessory prayer, how we pray for others. And then, of course, the sin leading to death. There we'll look at the four major views with that. Um, I think really two of the views overlap, but the unpartable sin that leads to apostasy. Apostasy is something that is, it's, it's, it's one who, who wants confessed and professed the faith and then repudiates it and throws it away. That's a picture of apostasy. Francis Schaeffer said this, apostasy, apostasy must be called what it is. It is spiritual adultery. And then again, one of the Puritans, uh, William Secker, to see a ship sink in the harbor of profession is more grievous than if it had perished in the open sea of profaneness. In other words, there's something that's very, very hurtful and discouraging when you see someone that once professed and and maybe even once was within the four walls here, but yet, even as John talks about, they used to be of us, but they've gone out from us. And so I think that's a picture of what that is. So we'll look at this under three points. Verse 13, eternal life is a certainty for the elect. It's a great comfort for the elect. Those who are presently believing in Christ can have this certainty. Now, the the reality is is that this sin-cursed world is filled with what? Uncertainty. There's all kinds of uncertainty. Will North Korea push the button? Was the next missile coming? Who are we going to go to war with? The next ISIS attack? There's a, you know, a many, many things that can be listed. But the truth of Job 5-7, that man is born for trouble just as sparks fly upward, is true. And we shouldn't expect anything different. Just think for a moment. The, ca- the wildfires that we're enduring in Northern California and possibly in Southern California, if the weather stands up and the dry Super dry heat continues with winds. Um, you know, these kinds of things. Nobody saw that coming. 11, 12 o'clock at night, one man said, well, I was going to bed and I looked out the window and I saw an ember way in the distance. And then I went and got a drink of water and I looked again and I saw a flame hit my yard and instantly it was like an explosion and they had 90 seconds to get out of the house. I mean, who can plan for that? I mean, there's uncertainties. The hurricanes, Hurricane Harvey in, in Houston, they just had devastating flooding. There's, there's a church that we sent aid to where there's two families in the church that were flooded out last year, not in hurricane floods, but were flooded out. And they said that's a once every 500-year floodplain, and they were flooded out again in the hurricane. There's uncertainties everywhere. Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico. It's like the 1900, 1920s in Puerty Rico now. I mean, it's, it's 95% of it's wiped out. In Dominica, there's virtually nothing left. We helped some churches there as well, where the government gave three chicken wings and two cans of milk 
for a family for the entire week for aid. There's huge needs. There's uncertainty everywhere. There's, it's uncertainty that causes to buy fire insurance in case our house burns or earthquake insurance. It's uncertainty that, that causes us to do these things. But how much more dreadful is uncertainty in the spiritual realm? Uncertainty as to, am I in Christ? Am I not in Christ? And those kinds of things. But John wants us to have an absolute certainty. Why? Because it's based on God's character. God does not lie. His veracity is true. And we can rest in what he declares to be true, as the psalmist says in Psalm 93. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house. John wants his hearers to know that if they are truly elect and truly in Christ, that they have eternal life. And elections taught in the Bible, you know, all throughout, even in Deuteronomy and various places, certainly Paul again and again. Um, For you know, brothers, beloved of God, that he has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. The elect of God should know that they are indeed elect. Well, let's unpack this verse. First of all, these things I have written unto you. What are these things? Is it the immediate last section? Is it up at chapter 5 and verse 1? Or the entire letter? I think it's the entire letter because he's been, he's been beating this drum. He's, it's been a reoccurring theme. And so these things I have written previously up to this point, all of these things I have written. And then who is it for? Those of you who believe. It's a present Present, active, and so it's those who are, who are actively believing and trusting in Christ today. Not that you, you made a decision at a, at a um, uh, crusade or something like that or in some church or said a prayer, but, but, but know that you today you are actively believing and trusting and clinging to Christ. Sola fide, that's exactly what it is. It's believing in Him, the great reformational truth. And then he says, those of you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. It's to know with a settled, intuitive knowledge is the idea here. And John wants them to know that they have eternal life. In fact, in the Gospel of John, you'll remember at the end of chapter 20 and verse 31, he writes this, these things have been written, purpose clause, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And by the way, if you compare John 20 and verse 31, the gospel, compared to this verse, which is really the two purpose verses of why he wrote the gospel and why he wrote the letter, what do you see? In the gospel of John, it's more evangelistic. I've written these things that you may believe, that I may persuade you. Here, he's writing to believers that we would have this settled assurance of salvation. Of course, when he speaks of eternal life, that you may know that you have eternal life, that's not something that, that's 20, 30, 40 years in the future. No, it's something that we possess now once we have been born again. That we, we begin eternal life when we become regenerate and experience the new birth. It speaks of the quality of life. Martin Luther said this, because eternal life is a difficult mystery, we must treat it constantly in order 
that we may retain and grow in faith. It is not like geometry or something like that that suffices once it's been grasped. In other words, spiritual realities and spiritual truths go against our sinful nature. And these things we need to be reminded. Why do you think the Lord's Supper is a prescribed ordinance of the church? Why don't we just do it once like baptism? Okay, I took the bread and the cup. Because we're sheep. We need to be reminded of the fundamentals of the faith. We need to be reminded of what Christ has done for us. And it's a present possession. It's not just a future hope. And it's not a reward. It's a gift based on what Christ has done. And then, of course, those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God speaks of the person and work of Christ in all of his fullness. Now, brethren, the importance of assurance of salvation. So many religions say you cannot have assurance. The building right next door, the large mosque over there, Islam teaches that you can't be sure that you're going to inherit you know, the, the, uh, their eternal life. The Roman Catholic Church as well says it's presumptuous for you to say that you can have assurance. But our confession speaks to this in chapter 18 and the second article. This assurance certainly is not bare conjectural or probable persuasion grounded on a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith Notice now, founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. So where does our assurance rest? What my performance is, how many boxes I can tick off, how I'm, how I'm performing, or it's founded upon the truth of the gospel. The blood, the shed blood, the atoning blood of Christ and his imputed righteousness to my account is the only way that we can stand before him. It's based upon Christ. Christ stood in my place as he died. He he stood in my place. And that's why, as we mentioned uh, last time, that, you know, if you're asked, are you married, you would never say, I'm not sure, right? It's yes or no. And so, too, we, we should know that we are in Christ. Listen to Spurgeon again. A man may know Christ in his heart, and yet at certain seasons, through weakness of judgment or stress of temptations, he may be cast into doubts as to whether he has any saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus at all. But he alone is happy who, building upon the sure foundation of God's promise, gives all diligence to make his calling and election sure. So this He wants us to have this well-grounded assurance. Now, verses 14 and 15, moving on, we must persevere in prayer. We must persevere in prayer. Look at this, verse 14. This is the confidence that we have before him, literally before his face, before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that phrase that he hears us. Well, of course, we know he's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. Of course, he hears us, right? But no, this is that he's keenly concerned for his children. The righteous cry and the Lord hears, the psalmist declares. The creator of the universe who's perfectly holy and just hears our cries. Isn't that amazing? This word confidence, he's used it a few times before in chapter 2 and verse 28. 
Little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away at his coming. The word means a state of boldness, a a free speech that we can come with confidence to the throne of grace and speak freely, encourages encourages us to do so. That we can ask anything according to his will is the secret of prayer. Prayer is not some blank check that you write out and then you draw from the riches of heaven and the riches of his grace like the health and wealth gospel seems to say. That you just ask anything, anything your carnal heart wants and God's obligated to give it to you. That is rank heresy. Don't believe it. It's not some blank check. Look back at chapter 3 and verse 20. 20 and 21. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So he's used this verse several times in relation to the coming of Christ and not shrinking away. Here he's using it in in regards to our prayer to him, encouraging us to persevere in prayer. Now, there's an assumption here because he's already said in chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us. So there's an assumption that when we come to pray, we're not coming with regarding sin in our heart. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen. if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But here, the text says that he hears. So there's an assumption that, that we're forsaking all sin, we're repenting of all sin, and we're coming with a clean conscience to him. It also assumes this, a posture of humility and submission. Submission to his word, humility before him and pouring our heart out before him. Listen to John Bunyan. Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Spirit. For what? For such things he has promised to give us. Pouring out to the Father, coming in the Son, in the strength of the Spirit. For what? Such things he's promised to give us. Not the Mercedes, not the big house, not the new motorcycle, as, as some would say. John 16, 24, Jesus says, Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive, and your joy may be full. We need to acknowledge some can ask for the wrong motives, and so we need to be careful of that. James 4, 3, you ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Now, why doesn't the health and wealth gospel have that verse somewhere? (laughs) Asking with for the wrong motives. It's for greed. It's for self. It's for self-exaltation. Now, I want to ask you something. If we have this great promise here, that it's even a, a, a confidence that when we come before him, before his face, that he hears us, why is it that so many of us can neglect the gift of prayer? I mean, why is it? Is it because we don't believe the promises? Is it because we don't really need to pray? We believe God's sovereign, he's going to take care of me anyway until the day he... What is it? It's our sin, it's our pride, it's our self-sufficiency, It's the idea that I can get by with the strength of myself without relying on God. It's any number of things. The distractions in this life alone. Beep, beep. 
beep, 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 you know, all of these like, alerts and everything, you know, it's like, you know, that kind of stuff. Social media, uh, entertainment, you know, these kinds of things that are abused and, you know, elaborate amounts of time spent on those things at what? At the cost of communing with God and pouring out your heart to him. J.C. Ryle has a wonderful little booklet. We've had it on the back table often. Uh, a call to prayer. And it is a challenge that we are to spend the right of the, a proper amount of time in prayer. And he gives this illustration. I couldn't locate it in, in my copy. I couldn't find my copy. Uh, but I do try to read it about once a year. It's that good. It's something that you should get your hands on. It's available online, a call to prayer, J.C. Ryle. But it's, it, it's the idea that men ought always to pray. It's as much a part of our renewed natures. Now that we're, we're, we're babes in Christ, we're children of God, just as a baby cries out for the breast and to be changed and to be swaddled and all of those things, it is just as natural for the child of God to pour out his heart before him. Verse 15, we know that he hears us. And, and if, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. If he hears, is a, it's assumed to be true. It's, it's obviously God's going to hear. And so it's, it's in that way. It's kind of like when Paul says, for now we really live, if, when he was proud of the Thessalonians, for now we really live if you stand firm in the faith. He didn't doubt that they would stand firm in the faith. Proverbs fifteen twenty nine: the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. And so we can ask anything. We can ask anything of God provided with the qualification. It's according to his will. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus asks, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it is opened. So brothers and sisters, again, prayer is not to impose our will upon God to try to get something that we want, but we come in submission to him, not trying to change his mind. And so, clear application of this. Pray biblical prayers. Study the things that, that, that God has, has set forth. This is the will of God for you. You know, these, these types of things that you abstain from sexual immorality. You can pray that. This is God's will for you again and again and again. And to study the biblical prayers, prayers of, of great and deep brokenness and confession of sin and, and, and seeking for renewal and true repentance. There's a lot to be learned just from the biblical prayers. Well, let's hasten on. Having looked at those first two points, we're going to now consider verses 16 and 17. We must intercede for others. John issues a call here for intercessory prayer. Prayer is oftentimes focused on giving God praise and adoration, as we do in our prayer meetings. Um, Oftentimes it's thanksgiving. Sometimes it's petition, right? But also there's another type of prayer, and that is interceding on behalf of others. 
coming alongside and and interceding for them. And so notice in verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God, he shall ask God will for him give life to those who commit a sin, not leading to death. Now, the grammar is a little bit difficult. The, the word ordering and even the translation isn't the best, especially on the sin leading to death, but we'll unpack it a little bit of a time. In prayer, we often think of we're coming to pray for our own needs, our own job, our own, you know, you want a wife, you want a husband, you want your children to become Christians. We're, we're praying for those kinds of things. But John, here at the end of this, said praying according to his will, now he shifts to where praying for others, interceding on behalf of others. And he says if one is sinning, it's literally in the original, if one is sinning a sin, that's, that's how it should be translated if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, it's sinning a sin. It's uh, the verb and the noun used uh, side by side. Not leading to death. Christians often fall into scandalous sin. Grievous sins. Sins that grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Sins of which they are ashamed as well as people of God on their behalf are ashamed. But all too often, and we need to guard against this, that if, if we see a brother sinning, rather than running to gossip and to gossip about it, we need to take it vertically and intercede for them on, on their behalf. The gossip is strongly forbidden in the Old and the New Testaments alike. And so going to blab to others about that person's sin is not the remedy, but to take it to the Lord. And then there's a place for lovingly confronting and those kinds of things, but that's not the purpose of this text. It's interceding on their behalf. Now, when it says if anyone sees his brother, I want to make it clear that this does not automatically mean that this is a Christian. Now, the one not leading to death probably is, but it could be if anyone sees his neighbor sinning a sin, Okay, in that case, a believer, but then in the, the one that's sending a sin unto death, it could be a non-believer. It's, it's not completely clear. The sin leading to death could be a reference to the false teachers who were essentially denying Christ. The Gnostics that were there, again, 1 John 2.19, they went out from us. They've proved that they're not of us, and that is a sin leading to death because they've denied the core essentials of the faith. They've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Now, let's talk about what this might mean. First of all, a valid translation for the second part. Let me read the second part of the verse. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. A valid translation would be, making request for those committing that sin is not something I'm saying to do. In other words, he's not commanding it, but he's, he's not necessarily forbidding it, as our English translations sometimes communicate it. But whatever it, whatever it means, we know that the hearers of John... And, and John, they knew what he meant because there's no elaboration, right? And so it was something that was uh, commonly assumed. Now, most sins are not mortal sins, but John clearly speaks here of a sin that is deadly enough to be called unto death. And even in rabbinical writings, even in the Old Testament, 
We have, for example, Numbers 18.22. The sons of Israel shall come near to the tent of meeting. Sorry. The sons of Israel shall not come near to the tent of meeting again, or they will bear sin and die. Now, the Greek translation of the Old Testament has this. They will incur a death-bearing sin. You can see the similarity there. So, what does this mean? There's various views, and we're going to go through them relatively quickly, but... um, the various views would be that it's, there's a certain sin that if committed, it's a sin automatically leading to death. Most commonly, it would be murder um, or one of the seven, deadly, or the seven deadly sins and that kind of thing. What's the problem with that? Well, just like the Roman Catholics, you know, they've got the moral sins and the venial sins. Venial sins can be forgiven, right? Uh, it's a lesser sin. It doesn't result in complete separation from God, but the mortal sins... Um, is automatically damnation to hell. So that's one view that's quickly discarded by most modern commentators. Some commentators hold to the second view, and this would be that if you see a professing Christian suddenly die, Ananias and Sapphira, they came and they lied against the Holy Spirit and they dropped dead, right? Remember in Acts chapter 5? Or even in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, in regards to the Lord's Supper, some are eating in the wrong manner and have fallen asleep. So sometimes, or some would say that that's what it means. It's those who, who die suddenly. Well, but what's the problem with that? And there's commentators I really respect that hold to that view. What's the problem with that? If I just drop dead right now in my mid-50s of a heart attack, I wonder if he committed the <laughs> sin leading to death. Or the next person, or the next person. And every single time you hear about somebody having a premature death, I wonder if that was, you know, God doesn't want us to do that. I, I, I just don't think that's uh, what the text is saying at all. Others would say that it is equivalent to the unforgivable sin, which we read in, in Mark chapter 3, it's in Matthew as well. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And and the eternal sin is a sense of eternal that that reveals the transgression can absolutely have no way of forgiveness whatsoever. Now, I think that that is related to apostasy, and we'll unpack that in a minute. Now, you might say, well, you know, I've wondered if if I've committed the unpardonable sin. And, you know, sometimes, and, you know, new Christians will sometimes struggle with that, and, you know, they lack assurance and that kind of thing. Well, look, the only people that can, can commit the unpardonable sin are what? Unsaved people, okay? If you're a true Christian and you're concerned about it, that's evidence that you haven't committed it, okay? So... <laughs> In fact, Augustine says that, as he was defining blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, as final impenitence. In other words, a final resolve to never repent again. Listen to Burkauer. The sin against the Spirit is not an acting against one's better conscience or a persecuting of the church of Christ, but an apostasizing, uh, apostatizing from Christ and his kingdom even though one already has the knowledge of Christ through the Spirit. Therefore, it is a falling away into the very conscience rebellion against the kingdom of God's grace. 
Now, the unpardonable sin sin is a blaspheming against God. Do you see uh, somewhat of of a parallel against those who would apostatize, a final apostasy? Now, on the one hand, maybe one, like these Gnostics, had professed and had a, a you know, flourishing profession, but ultimately denied who Christ was and a whole manner of other things. And, and they've, they've turned from the faith. Does that mean they lost their salvation? Of course not. We don't believe that. But they've tasted of something. Hebrews 6, verse 6, For in the case of those who had once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why? Since they crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So therefore, it's a sin of bitter resistance to the truth of God. Um, there's others, uh, other examples that you could say that, that, okay, this person is obviously, uh, for example, in World Magazine, they had an um, article of a, a woman who took a stone, and this is, excuse me for this, but it, it needs to be communicated, and beat her two sons to death with a stone. And then later said that God, in a very stoic way, that God actually told me to do that. Now, can we, should we pray that she would be forgiven of that sin? She's obviously deluded, right? She's obviously gone completely too far. Now, we as humans, when we observe various sins, it's not necessarily for us to be able to, that's the sin leading to death. Oh, okay, that's not, and, and that kind of thing. Think of this, the kiss of Judas upon the cheek of Christ when he's being betrayed. And then that was a precursor to his ultimate perdition, right? But then you contrast that with Peter's oath. I'll never deny you, Lord. And then he's denying the Lord hours later, three times. And we might think, well, that's a sin unto death. But that was a precursor to what? The Lord's forgiveness and pardon. So woe to us that we begin to think that we can judge and scrutinize which sin falls into what category. Jeremiah 7, 16 As you know, do not pray for this people. Do not lift up the cry of prayer for them. Do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. And so there's a a certain point, again, where the Lord says, do not intercede for these people. John Brown, uh, 19th century pastor, the apostate must perish, not because the sacrifice of Christ is not of efficacy enough to expiate even his guilt, but because continuing in his apostasy, he will have nothing to do with that sacrifice which is truly available for the sacrifice of sin. Now, John does not forbid praying for such cases. We, we don't, again, we don't, we, we can't scrutinize, but, but we do, we will know them by their fruits. And I do want to mention the Dan Barker debate that, uh, it's now three weeks with Dr. Mandy, Andy McIntosh. It's available online. Many of us went to that. Dan Barker used to be a Lutheran pastor. James White has debated him. Dr. McIntosh did a few weeks ago. Again, it's available online. As far as we know, we don't, I mean, by his fruit, right? He's an apostate. He wants administered the very sacraments and proclaimed the truth of God. And now the debate's on atheism, but they didn't talk about that. It was all about blaspheming and slandering 
the sinless, glorious, gentle, loving God of the Bible. What is apostasy? It's a deliberate repudiation and abandonment of the faith faith that one had once professed. That's why Hebrews is filled with those warnings. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest any one of you, lest any one of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leads you to falling away from the living God. Apostasy differs completely from heresy. What is heresy? Heresy is denying one element of the Christian faith, but retains a Christian name, whereas apostasy just absolutely repudiates everything and even has an agenda to slander God. Now, Dan Barker, of course, what he missed is the glory of the cross is that that victory comes through suffering as he was a substitute on our behalf. And he's just shredding this out, calling God an abusive husband, a slaughterer, a killer of babies, a rapist, and all of this kind of stuff so that our blood as Christians that were in the audience and those watching began to boil because this is my God that you're slandering and ripping to shreds, seeking to rip to shreds with no foundation whatsoever. The most famous... um, picture in the New Testament really is Judas Iscariot, right? Three and a half years of ministering alongside with Christ, and then what? Betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. Absolutely incredible. Demas would be another one, having loved this present world, he's left us, Paul says. Hymenaeus and Alexander would be others. But Dan Barker continued to blaspheme and slander God. And may God have mercy on his soul because I believe that it's those type of people where the hottest area of hell is reserved. The torment will be so much more intense. J.C. Ryle says this, None prove so hopelessly wicked as those who, after experiencing strong religious convictions, and he did, went to seminary, was in the ministry, and have gone back again to sin and the world Hopelessly wicked, depraved, deluded is what this man is. Well, verse 17, very quickly, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. First um, John 3, 4, everyone who practices sin, habitually practices sin, and also practices lawlessness. This sin is lawlessness. All sin should be taken seriously. And that's why, First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's righteous and just to forgive us. And then also to repent of that sin and to mortify and to slay it, to be killing sin or sin will be killing us, to know the power and the deception of sin that we've got to be actively killing it. Romans eight thirteen. if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if according to the Spirit you are doing what? Putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Well, let's draw just a couple of brief points of application. First of all, what a blessing it is that we can have Christian assurance. Amen, brethren? What, what an incredible blessing to not be tossed to and fro and, and by every wind of doctrine, but to have a well 
grounded assurance founded upon what? Not our performance, but upon the blood, the substitution of Christ and his imputed righteousness. That's what it's founded upon. And then how that then begins to fuel freeness of speech in our prayers. As we begin to pray according to his will, as we renew our minds, we think more and more biblically and have a biblical worldview. What a blessing that is. The hymn says, we are thine, thou do thou defriend us, be the guardian of our way, keep the flock from sin, defend us, seek us when we go astray. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, hear us when we pray. And then to have the deposit of the Holy Spirit on the inside, what an immeasurable blessing. Secondly, beware not to judge your neighbor. Again, back to this, you know, is that the sin leading to death? Is this one not? And, and, and we must not be quick to think that someone has sinned this sin. In fact, yea, it's prideful to think that you've got a spiritual gift not listed in the New Testament that you're able to discern between Judas and Peter, for example. Of course, it's easy for us looking back, right? You don't have that, you know, unnamed spiritual gift uh, that you're able to do that. But Peter spent three years with Jesus. But at the time of Christ's arrest, when the servant girl asked and others if he knew Christ, and he denied it with an oath and with cursings, we might say, that man sinned the sin of death. But no. Instead, what do we have? Christ praying for him. Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Peter did not die. He did not um, sin the sin of death. He didn't die physically or spiritually. In fact, he had a, a lifetime of fruitful ministry to his God as a great apostle. Praise God that he's in the business of restoring us when we deny him of restoring us when we get entangled and wound up in all manner of sin. And that's why we're to do, as the writer says in in Hebrews 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Therefore, since we have such a cloud, such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance in the sin that so easily entangles us and let us Run how with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And if you're here today and you refuse to believe in Christ, you refuse to submit to his lordship, you are under God's wrath. You are under God's wrath and you will stand before a holy God someday. Your prayers are not heard. The favor of God does not rest upon you. You have no assurance, no Christian assurance, but but you do have an assurance, an assurance that you will spend an eternity in hell. But the door of opportunity is open today. Repent of your sin. Come running. Knock people out of the way. Flee to Christ. Flee from the wrath to come. Isn't that what the angels told Lot? and his family, flee from the wrath to come. But oh, how many will just be stubborn in their sin and not see the beauty of a Savior who bled and died that you could run to him. Oh, how we pray that you would repent and believe in him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and and even just helping us through this 
not a very easy text and passage, Lord. Father, I pray that you would increase our confidence in our assurance and in our prayers, and even that we would be those that intercede on behalf of others. In Jesus' name, amen.